So tonight is going to look a little bit different in that since we are taking such a large chunk of scripture, uh, we're going to be going over 45 verses. I'm not going to read it all at once, um, but rather we're going to kind of take it in, in uh, chunks, um, in, in little sections here. Um, and so let me, I'm going to read the first section and then I'll pray for us and then we will uh, continue on from there. Um, But this is what God's word says. Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of this land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, we thank you, God, for giving us this historical account. Lord, this chapter was put into your word for a specific reason. Lord, that we might be instructed. Lord, that we might be taught how to follow our Savior, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that in this moment, at this time, that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our sins. Lord, we come before you and we confess now that we have fallen short. Lord, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed this week, this day, maybe this hour. And Lord, we are so grateful that you freely forgive, not because we deserve it, but because your son Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And Lord, your word says that if we come to you and we admit our sin, and we ask you to forgive us, Lord, that you freely offer forgiveness. And so we ask that you would do that now 
and that you would make us ready to hear your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't always follow instructions. I, uh, Lindsay and I got this, uh, this it's like, it was a little storage rack, and we got it for our, our old place that we lived at back up in Marysville. And I, I thought that I had a, re- a pretty good grasp on how this thing was supposed to fit together. And so I was like, mm, I don't need the instructions, right? So I started putting it together, and, and I, I finish it, and I'm like, man, instructions, what a waste of time. I, I figured it out all on my own, right? I set it up, and it's, you know, it's sitting up in the, in, the, in the bathroom. And then as soon as we set something on it, it just starts swaying back and forth like there's a, a strong breeze blowing through a tree. And you're like, oh, what is going on here? And so I, I take out the instructions. I look at it, and lo and behold, I put on the, uh, the stabilizing bar. I put it on in the wrong spot. And I was too lazy to actually, like, fix it. And so I just kind of left it like that. And we just kind of hoped that it wouldn't fall apart. But I share that because instructions are important. Instructions are important. And the story that we're reading tonight is essentially, it is a story about Israel rejecting the direction of the Lord, them resisting God's direction, and it ultimately leads to their ruin. And that's the, the main thing that I want you to take away from tonight, is that resisting God's direction ultimately leads to ruin. Resisting God's direction ultimately leads to ruin. To give you guys some context here, uh, we, so a couple weeks ago, we were in Numbers chapter 11, okay? So, it's, it's, Numbers is all about the nation of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, okay? So the original, you guys will remember, what's the original name of the book of Numbers? You guys, the Hebrew name, you guys remember? In the wilderness, okay? Um, and so basically the, the whole of the book details uh, a 40-year period where the nation of Israel uh, wanders through the wilderness. And chapter 14 tells us why they wandered through the wilderness. But in order to understand chapter 14, we have to understand what happened in chapter 13. So in chapter 13, God tells uh, Moses and tells the leadership of Israel, send out 12 men into this land that I have promised to give to you to spy it out. Take a look at it. And so they send out these 12 spies, these 12 men who are there 40 days in the land, and they, they look at everything that they need to look at, and then they come back, and 10 of them saw the inhabitants of the land, the people that were there, and became discouraged and said, the people are too fierce, this is too hard, we can't do it. Only two of the 12 Joshua and Caleb actually believed that Israel could go in and take the land. Now, what you need to know is that God has already promised Israel that this land is theirs. He is literally all they have to do is show up. And the Lord's like, I will fight for you. And they believe the report of these faithless men, which is just an interesting side note that we should remember is that people who 
discourage us from having faith are not always the best influence and probably shouldn't be spending a lot of time with those kinds of people, as McKenna exhorted us earlier. And so these, these, ten, these 10 spies, they come back and they basically, they convince the whole group of, the whole congregation of Israel, we can't do it. And only two of those 12 spies actually believed that they could go in and take the promised land. That God had said, it's yours if you just go up and you fight for it. And so chapter 14 is the people's response, right? Which is what we saw in verse one. It says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And so basically they believed the report of the spies and they become discouraged because they feel like God has kind of led them down this path and then the, the door is closed. And so they, they begin to be discouraged and they, they, uh, they cry and they cry out against the Lord, okay? And so what this passage teaches us is that these, these people, they resisted the direction of the Lord and that led to their ruin. These uh, this entire generation of Israelites was not able to go into the promised land. An entire generation, if it says in another verse, it says from 20 years old and up, they were not allowed to enter the promised land. Why? Because they didn't trust God. Because they didn't believe that God would do what he said he would do. And so... As we're reading through this passage, you'll see on your handout here, I I wanted to just kind of give you guys a little bit of an outline to kind of, because this is a a large portion of scripture, okay? So I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an outline, something that you can kind of look at that lets you know kind of where we are in the story. So in verses 1 through 11, you have the sin of the people, okay? In verses 12 through 25, you have the prayer of Moses, And in verses 26 through 45, you have the consequences of sin. So the sin of the people, the prayer of Moses, and the consequences of sin. But first, let's talk about that that first section there, the sin of the people. Look with me at verse 2. And it says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said... To them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Now drop down to verse 11. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now you guys remember, these are not people who are unfamiliar with God. These are the people whom God miraculously delivered out of Egypt, right? God rained 10 plagues down on the nation of Egypt, and God miraculously delivered them. These are the people whom the presence of God during the day went before them as a pillar of smoke, and at night, the presence of God went before them as a pillar of fire. Okay, God's presence was literally always with them, and yet these people are the ones who are grumbling against the Lord. Now, what I want us to, to notice for, for our time here is I want us to notice in verse, in verse two there, it says that the people grumbled, okay? So that's an external sin. 
okay? The sin of complaining, the sin of grumbling. But now drop down in verse 11 there, and it says, how long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? Okay, so this is what uh, kind of a, a for free point that I want you guys to take away that I want you to be thinking about is that resistance or sin, to say it another way, can be internal or it can be external. I think oftentimes one of the things that we, uh, one of the, the ideas that we have is that sin is something that we do. It's an action but sin is always something that begins in the heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed lies, murder, adultery. And so the idea that sin is just something that you do is not a biblical idea. What the Bible teaches us here and what we're seeing in this passage is that the sin of the people, of their rebellion, their rejection of God's direction, and their grumbling is the result of the condition of their heart. Namely, that they did not believe that God was able to do what he said he would do. I think, of it, I think of it this way. Some of you have seen Lord of the Rings and some of you have not, okay? The boys have been kind of watching some of the Lord of the Rings movies. But if you've seen the first movie or if you've read the book, there's a character in there named Boromir, okay? Boromir's my favorite character. Um, and Boromir has a really cool story arc. He kind of starts off as a jerk and then turns into a good guy and like, sac spoiler alert, sacrifices his life for somebody else uh, for two hobbits. Um, but uh, he's got a really cool story. But, but what's interesting about Boromir is you see when he first runs into Frodo and he sees that Frodo has the ring of power, he, he desires it, he covets it. And he says, I would use this ring as a weapon, right? He has his own agenda, his own ideas. And so he has the sin of covetousness the sin of desiring that which is not his going on in his heart, okay? Later on in the movie, you see Boromir attack Frodo and try to take the ring from him. That is an external sin, okay? But it began in his heart. He saw, he wanted that which was not his, and so he tried to take it from Frodo, Okay? That is often how sin works. You see, God has given us many good things, but he has not said that we can have anything and everything that we want. And so when sin happens, oftentimes it is because of a desire that, that arises in the heart, a twisted or a sinful desire that leads to a twisted or sinful action. And so we have to, if we are to be on guard against sin in our lives, we have to recognize that it's not just something that you do, but sin dwells within you. Your heart still has the presence of sin. Um, someone once said that we have been set free from the power of sin through Christ, through all that he accomplished on the cross. He has set us free from the power 
but the presence of sin remains. So all of our thoughts, feelings, and desires are impacted by the presence of sin. We talked about this a little bit at the book study on Tuesday night. We have to ask the question, when we have desires arise, when we have thoughts arise, when we, have, when we want to make certain choices, we need to be examining ourselves and asking, is this a desire that comes from a new heart? Is this the, the desire, a desire that Christ would have? Because if you call yourself a Christian, if you're a Christian, your desire is that uh, it should no longer be you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That's why those 1990s uh, bracelets, WWJD, were awesome, man. What would Jesus do, right? Uh, it's, it's really quite that simple. You ask the question, is this a thought that Jesus would think? Is this a desire that Jesus would have? Is this a choice that Jesus would make? And that will really help you live a more godly life. It will really help you honor the Lord if that is your desire. And if you're a Christian, it ought to be your desire. But one of the things that we need to recognize is that what sin does is it often results from a lack of trust. And there's three things that we often distrust when we wander into sin. We don't trust God's word, we don't trust God's goodness, and we don't believe in his power. We don't trust God's word, we don't believe in his goodness, or we don't believe in his power. Those three things, not recognizing and believing in those things, will often lead us into sin. And so what I want us to, to remember is Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. We are sinful internally and externally, but Jesus is the one who came from the Father filled with grace and truth. Jesus is the true and better Israel, because he is the one who came from the Father and purchased for us the true promised land that is heaven. Jesus is the true and better Joshua in that he actually leads his people into the promised land. The, the book of Hebrews talks about how Joshua didn't really fully lead the people of God into the promised land because Jesus is the only one who could do that. And so the promised land really is just uh, intended to be a picture of life in eternity with Jesus. That's the real promised land. That's what this promised land is pointing towards. And so we who are sinful through and through, in and out, must rely on, come to, and profess our Jesus as our only hope because he is the only one who came from the Father, internally desiring and externally fulfilling the will of God. And so my encouragement to you is if you recognize, maybe you've, you've resisted God's direction this week, maybe in, maybe in a thought, in a word, in an action, come to Jesus. Confess that failure to him. Ask him to forgive you and trust in the fact that 
He lived perfectly from the inside out because he knew that you could not. So the people, the, the sin of the people began in the heart and made its way out into complaining, into uh, rejecting God's direction. And now we'll see Moses' response to uh, this situation. Because if you look at verse 12 there, the Lord says something that's quite, quite startling, actually. God says, I will strike them, meaning the people, with pestilence and disinherit them or, or uh, reject them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. That would be a pretty tempting offer. I don't know if you guys remember all that Moses was going through back in chapter 11, but in chapter 11, Moses is like, these people are so annoying and so burdensome, God, you should just kill me. That is how discouraged he was. And God literally right here, it almost seems like he's giving him an out. And it's amazing to see how Moses responds in this moment. Look at verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have, uh, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Verse 17, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity or the sin of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. That is a sweet, sweet prayer. Um, and it is such a, a testimony, one, to what the Lord can do in somebody's heart, because this, this doesn't seem like the same man that we saw in chapter 11 who was so discouraged that he asked the Lord literally just to whack him on the spot. Right? This is, God has done something amazing in, in Moses here. Um, but what I want us to, to recognize, what, what I want you to take away from this prayer of Moses is that prayer is about surrendering our will to God's will. Prayer is about surrendering our will to God's will. In Moses here, he actually acts in a way that points us forward to Jesus. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the one who intercedes for his people. And because Jesus intercedes for his people in the presence of the Father, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come near to him in faith. And so Moses is, is really pointing us forward to, to Jesus and his uh, his prayer, his intercessory role as the, the true and greater Moses. But uh, for, for our intents and purposes here, what I want us to really to, to notice here 
is if you look at verse 15 there, he says, now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able. And so you, you recognize in this prayer, there is a very radical God-centeredness that is going on in this prayer. Moses doesn't, uh, he, he, he doesn't pray, Lord, for the sake of you know, this people, but rather he says, for your sake, for your namesake, for your glory, O Lord, do not destroy this people, but instead show once again that you are powerful and that you are able to bring us into the land. And now, the re- and then also, if you look at verse 18, it says, if you back up to verse 17 there, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, okay? Now, verse 18 is a quote from somewhere. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, okay? Where have we heard that before? So you'll notice there's a little, there's a little, uh, not apostrophe, what's the word? Uh, you've got the two little quotes, and then you've got the one, the one quote, but it's the one and not the, the two. Um, don't know why that's important. Um, but you'll notice here, what is Moses doing? He is drawing God's attention back to something that God said in Exodus chapter 20. This is how God revealed himself in the very beginning when Israel first came into a relationship with God. And so Moses is saying back to the Lord the things that the Lord said about himself to Moses. And so Moses, in asking the Lord to spare these people, he's not actually trying to uh, push a different agenda. He's actually pushing the Lord's agenda. He is saying, Lord, for your glory and for the sake of your character being uh, honored among the nations, don't destroy these people. Instead, show that you are powerful. And it's such an amazing model for us of how we should pray. Because oftentimes we come to the Lord and we have these mixed motives of we, we almost look at God like he's a gumball machine. If you, and if you stick a prayer in the slot and you twist it, he'll give you the gumball that you want. Uh, although usually you never get the flavor that you want from the gumball machine anyways. Usually you get green or some nasty color. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and, and I think about if you guys have ever seen, um, how many of you guys, have you guys ever seen the new Lost in Space show? Have you guys watched that? No? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, so there's a character in there, and you've, you've seen characters like this before, but it's Dr. Smith. And Dr. Smith is the kind of character that is basically just a sociopath. And, and she will say and do anything. It, she will be nice to get what she wants, right? There's an ulterior motive behind every kind action that she, that she takes. And not in, a, not in a, a one-to-one similarity, but in a similar way, sometimes we come to the Lord with our own ulterior motives. We come with our own will, our own agenda, and we think God should answer our prayers in accordance with our will. And what the Lord teaches us through this passage and what Moses exemplifies is that we need to pray in accordance with God's will. 
You see, prayer is not about you getting your way. It's about you going God's way. It's about you aligning yourself with God's will. And there should be a, a little bit of, a, of a, an, a caveat, an asterisk here, because um, it's not, when, I, when I say that, my fear is what you will hear is God doesn't care how I think. God doesn't care what, how I feel. And that is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there is a little bit of a tension here where like our relationship with God truly is a relationship. And so when you have things going on in your life, when you are discouraged, when you are depressed, when you are, uh, you know, when you're feeling down, God wants you to bring that to him. When you are feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, overwhelmed by homework, or overwhelmed by a drama situation with a boy or a drama situation with a friend, God does not want you to, like the Israelites did in chapter 11, talk about that thing in front of him, but rather God wants you to talk directly to him about the things that are going on in your life. But what is really being driven home here is the heart attitude that God desires for us to have when we approach him in prayer. Namely, that we would desire that his will would prevail. We can come to him and genuinely share the things that, that are on our hearts. And First Peter tells us that he cares for us and that we should cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. But we should be humble enough to recognize that your way might not be the best way. The way that you think a situation should work out might not be the best way. God, who is infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely creative, perfect in every single way, knows more than I do. Amen? Amen. Knows more than you do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, good. I just want to make sure there's just as many amens on that one. <laughs> I was like, oh, Chris, amen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Definitely more than that guy. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I share that because oftentimes when we get discouraged, if God doesn't answer prayers the way that we want, it's because we think that in our, our, our limited perspective, on how things are, that, that it should be our way. But what we don't recognize is that we only see a small, a small portion of what is happening, and God sees the whole picture. And everything is working out in such a way that it will ultimately be for your good. If you are in Christ, this promise is for you. That every single thing in your life, whether it is good, whether it is bad, uh, or everything in between, it will all be for your good, and for God's glory. If you are a Christian, that promise is for you. If you are not a Christian, that promise is not for you. And so I would encourage you, if you are not a Christian, give your life to Christ. Because there is such hope and freedom and joy in knowing the God who made you and loves you. So with that said, we, we have to recognize that often when we pray, we're not like Moses we're like us, and we come and we have our own agendas and different, different things that we want to push, 
And so this is where the gospel comes in because we see our Savior, Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, on the night before he was about to be crucified, on the night before he was about to bear the infinite wrath of God, what do we see? We see Jesus in the garden praying. And you know what he does? He exemplifies perfectly how we should pray. He says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And that is how we should pray. We should tell God our desires, but then hold them with open hands. And we say, God, not my will, your will be done. And Jesus is the only one who has ever perfectly exemplified that kind of prayer. And he did that because he knows that you and me, we don't always do that. He knows that you and me, we're going to fail at this because we're broken, because we're sinners, because we are in desperate need of the perfect Savior who always prays perfectly. So this is, this is the prayer of Moses, and in, in it, in it shows us that really prayer is about surrendering our will to God's will. But the final thing that we see here is the consequences of sin, and this is verses 26 through 45. We don't have time to read all of it, so we're just going to select a couple because we're already over. Um, what about Oh, we're going to do, we're going to do okay, groups. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you look at verse 20 there, then the Lord said, I have pardoned or I have forgiven according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Love that verse. None of the men who have, se- who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. Pause. Okay, so what's going on here? God says, okay, Moses, because you interceded, because you prayed for them, I'm going to forgive their sin. But God does not remove the consequences for their sin. That's important. And this is what one of the, the points that I want us to take away from this section of Scripture is that resistance always has consequences. Resistance always has consequences. Okay? And this is not because the Lord is unkind or unloving towards the people of Israel. This is because God loves them, because he wants to teach them that resisting his will, that, that turning away from him is the worst possible thing for them. Proverbs talks about if you protect the fool from the consequences of his sin, he doesn't learn. And God, being wise and loving, is teaching these Israelites that it is best to trust in the Lord, to believe in his promises, to believe that he will do what he says he will do. And so... In this section here, it's actually really quite funny 
Um, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, uh, verse 3, it says, Why is the Lord bringing us into land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. And then if you back up a little bit for that, it said the whole congregation uh, wishes that they would have died in the land of Egypt or that they would have died in the wilderness. Now drop down to verse, let's see here. Verse 28. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, son of Nun. So what did they say at the beginning? It'd be better if we died in the wilderness. God says, you have asked for it, you shall have it. You're gonna die in the wilderness, okay? But not only that, then they, then they say, our kids and our wives, they're gonna, they're gonna become prey to the enemy. Look at verse 31. He says, but your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring them in. I will give them the land that you despised. This is, ama- this is amazing. The Lord, he hears, it's so it's funny, TJ and I were talking about how it's almost like a, it's, God has a sense of humor. He's, they're saying, oh, it'd be better to die in the wilderness and our kids are gonna die here too. And the Lord's like, you're gonna die in the wilderness, but your kids, I'm gonna give them the land that you despised. I'm gonna give them what you wouldn't take because you wouldn't trust me. Amazing. And so we see here that this first generation of Israelites, there's consequences for their sin. God doesn't remove the consequences. Now, what is not being said here is this dying in the wilderness is not equivalent to them going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is them dying in the wilderness is a direct consequence for the action of resisting God's direction. Okay? Make sense? And... God allowing and causing consequences to happen is not a sign that he doesn't love you. It's a sign that he loves you. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home and made a profession of faith at a really young age, but really didn't, didn't grasp it, didn't understand it until I was older. And one of the things that was different about my life than a lot of my friends' lives who weren't Christians is I would do stupid things, I would do sinful things, and I'd always get caught. The Lord would always work it out where somehow my mom and dad would find out or a friend would find out and then tell my mom and dad. I remember one time, I, so I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music growing up and I had hidden a bunch of secular music on my iPod and through all these weird circumstances, my mom and dad were like, let me see your iPod. I'm like, uh, okay. And so they look on it, see all this secular music. The Lord loved me enough to blow up my plans in my face so that I would not stray from the path that he wanted me to go on. Did your parents only allow you to have Christian music on there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that is what's happening here in this passage. God loves these people so much that he's not willing to let them destroy their souls or destroy their lives. And so he says, for your sake, because I love you, because I want to teach you, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. You're going to die here in the wilderness. And so what we need to recognize is that 
if you make sinful choices, sometimes the Lord will protect you from the consequences, but other times he's going to let you experience the consequences to teach you not to be stupid. Okay? And that's, that's just the reality. That's, that's how he is. He loves us. And he says, you're going to do stupid? I'm going to teach you not to be stupid. <laughs> and uh, so what I want us to take away from this and what I want us to remember as we go into our small groups 15 minutes late, sorry, um, is, is this, is that you will do stupid because we're, sin, we're sinful. You know, we, we will do dumb things. That's, that's just how we are. But what you need to recognize and what you need to remember is that Jesus, even though we may experience temporary consequences now, Jesus took the ultimate consequences, the ultimate punishment for our sin. We may experience the correction of the Lord, but we will never experience the condemnation of the Lord if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, the Lord may bring consequences, he may bring correction, he will never bring condemnation. Romans 8.1 is the best, not the best verse in the Bible, one of the best. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? And so what we need to remember is that Jesus is the one who took the ultimate consequences. He is the one who took God's full force wrath because of the fact that you and I go astray because of the fact that you and I often resist the direction of the Lord. And he did that, one, so we could be brought back into a relationship with God and so that we would not have to experience the consequences, the the ultimate consequences for our sins. Okay, let's pray and then we'll go into our groups.